Hello, and welcome to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connolly. Thank you very much for listening. Before we begin today, I'd like to take a brief moment to say a few words about recent events. As you may be aware, on February 13th, there was a mass shooting on the campus of Michigan State University that took the lives of three students and injured five others. I myself attended MSU for undergrad, and I lived there until just last year. I attended many of my classes in the very building where the violence took place. Many close friends of mine still go to school there, and while I am immensely grateful that none of them were hurt, this incident has still deeply affected me. I've struggled for quite some time to properly articulate my thoughts on this matter, and frankly I won't make a real attempt to do so here, as this isn't really the place for it. What I will do, however, is ask that you consider donating to any one of a number of fundraisers for the victims and their families. I know that this is a bit of an unusual request, but these are unusual circumstances. You hear about things like this happening on the news all the time without really thinking about how a similar event might affect you or people you care about. Needless to say, this past week has been quite difficult for me trying to make sense of things and trying to do all I can for those affected. Anyway, I don't mean to ramble on forever about this, but if you would like to help support the victims and their families, links to various fundraisers will be in this episode's description. You should feel by no means obligated to do so, but all I ask is that you please consider it. I know I don't usually do things like this, but I'd like to thank you for hearing me out anyway. Without further ado, let's get into the show. On June 26, 363 CE, Emperor Julian breathed his last breath upon a Mesopotamian battlefield. Alongside Julian died centuries upon centuries of Roman pagan tradition. Who was this firebrand emperor? Why is it that history refers to him as the apostate? And how did he meet so untimely an end? All these questions and more will be answered in our series on the life of Emperor Julian the Apostate. But first, we must begin the narrative 26 years earlier, with the death of Emperor Constantine I, also known as Constantine the Great. Constantine was 65 years old at the time of his death, and he had been Roman Emperor in some capacity or another for a little over 30 years. Only for the last 13 of these 30 years had he been the sole, uncontested ruler of the Roman Empire. This 13-year period was one of stability compared to the tumult of the previous three decades of constant succession crises and civil wars. In order to explain Constantine's initial rise to power, however, we must go back even further. In 284, Emperor Diocletian came to power on the tail end of the crisis of the 3rd century, a period wherein the Roman Empire very nearly collapsed due to a series of factors both internal and external. Side note, I have written a series about this that will be released at some point in the near future. Anyway, Emperor Diocletian instituted a series of reforms to prevent such a catastrophe from occurring in the future. One such reform was the Tetrarchy system, an arrangement where the responsibilities of ruling the vast Roman Empire would be evenly divided among four co-emperors. As unstable as such a system may seem to be upon first glance, the firm hand of Diocletian ensured the cooperation of his three co-emperors, and the empire was saved from the very brink of collapse. In the year 305, Diocletian voluntarily abdicated, and predictably his successors almost immediately began fighting amongst themselves. The very next year saw the death of Diocletian's immediate successor, a military officer of Illyrian origin named Constantius Chlorus. Constantius Chlorus's untimely death serves as the immediate trigger for the ensuing period of civil war. 
Over the next three decades, Constantius Chlorus's son, the aforementioned Constantine, managed to systematically defeat all three of his fellow tetrarchs, along with other usurpers, in a series of wars, and by 324 he had reunited the entire Roman Empire under his rule. After having accomplished this, Constantine instituted a series of administrative, military, and economic reforms, oversaw a number of successful military campaigns on the empire's borderlands, and initiated construction on the new imperial capital city of Constantinople. But his defining achievement, perhaps the main reason why he is known to history as Constantine the Great, was his promulgation of the Edict of Milan, which ended the long-standing state persecution of the Christians. Constantine's reasons for taking such a drastic action are shrouded in over a thousand years of myth. According to the most popular version of the legend, while Constantine was preparing to go to battle against one of his rivals, a vision appeared, instructing him to fight in the name of the Christian god. Constantine had his soldiers bear Christian symbols into the ensuing battle, from which they emerged victorious. In this way, the truth of Christianity was proven demonstrably, and Constantine was swayed. Historians do have good reason to doubt this story's authenticity, but I'd rather not get bogged down in all the intricacies of this. Constantine's nephew Julian, the subject of this episode, described his uncle's conversion to Christianity in his satirical work, The Caesars. In The Caesars, Julian wrote that Constantine, whom he depicts as a hedonist and a kleptocrat, could not find a god in the Greco-Roman pantheon that aligned with his values. He first went to the god of pleasure, and later to Jesus, who promised him absolution for his profligate ways. In any event, it should suffice to say that Constantine became convinced that halting the state persecution of Christians was the right thing to do, and he issued the Edict of Milan less than a year following his victory at the Milvian Bridge. While the Edict of Milan is quite significant in that it marks a sudden about-face of imperial policy regarding Christians for the past 200 years, it is important to note that it did not, as is often believed, make Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. That would not be the case for another half-decade or so until the Edict of Thessalonica in 380. Constantine himself would not be inducted into the Christian faith until he lay on his very deathbed. The Edict of Milan simply decriminalized the practice of Christianity. While Christians constituted a sizable and rapidly growing minority population within the empire, most Romans would have still been practicing various local religious traditions vaguely grouped under the term paganism. The ruling class of the empire, too, at least still largely adhered to the traditional Roman pagan religion, but that was quickly changing. It was into this milieu that Flavius Claudius Julianus, known to history as Julian the Apostate, was born. His parents were Julius Constantius and his wife, Basilina. Julian's father, Julius Constantius, was the half-brother of Emperor Constantine, making Julian the emperor's nephew. About his mother, Basilina, little is known other than that she was a member of a wealthy Greek family from Anatolia, and that she had died while giving birth to Julian. Julian's date of birth is a matter of some historical dispute. The exact date, month, and even year have not been conclusively determined. Most historians can confidently place his birth sometime between the years 331 and 332. Historians can conclusively place the location of his birth, in the imperial capital of Constantinople. Julian spent the first five or so years of his life growing up in the city of Constantine, in a relatively high degree of luxury and comfort. His mother was dead, but he still had his father and two half-brothers. The extended imperial family that previously had treated Julius Constantius and his ilk with disdain were gradually coming to accept them. This, of course, changed with the death of Constantine in May 
337, which brings us back to where we began. In the final years of his life, Constantine had made plans to leave the empire to not only his three sons, but also to his half-brother and nephews as well. How someone as competent as Constantine could have possibly expected this to work is beyond me, but the results were all the same. The ministers and army officers who had served under Constantine had no desire to see the empire split up between six different rulers, but they were willing to tolerate the rule of Constantine's three sons, very confusingly named Constantine, Constantius, and Constans. Sometime between the death of Constantine in May and the ascension of the three brothers in September, a massacre took place in the imperial palace. Eight members of the Constantian dynasty were murdered, including Julian's father and one of his half-brothers. Julian himself and his other half-brother Gallus were spared at the intercession of Bishop Eusebius of Nicomedia, a man universally respected in the imperial court, who successfully made the case that the two boys, aged five and twelve respectively, were far too young to pose any real threat to the rule of Constantius and his brothers. The massacre of the Constantian dynasty is surrounded in mystery. Historians are only confident that it happened sometime in the summer of the year 337 CE. That being said, all evidence suggests that Constantius had some measure of culpability in the massacre. One, possibly apocryphal story, asserts that Constantius came into possession of a letter that he claimed was written by Constantine on his deathbed, that expressed his wishes that his brother-in-law and nephews be excluded from rule, thereby providing Constantius with the justification he needed to have any threats to his own rule eliminated. A more plausible version of events holds that the massacre was orchestrated by other elements at the imperial court, and Constantius, while having full knowledge, did nothing to stop it. This is all to say that, regardless of whether or not he orchestrated the massacre personally, or merely sat by while it was being planned and carried out, Constantius and his brothers proved to be the beneficiaries of this very act. Constantius himself, of course, denied responsibility, but Julian later blamed him regardless, writing of him, quote, Our fathers were brothers, sons of the same father, and close relations as we were, how this most humane emperor treated us. He put to death six of our cousins, my father who is his uncle, and my eldest brother, all without trial, end quote. Meanwhile, Bishop Eusebius, who had placed Julian and Gallus under his protection, sent the boys to their grandmother's estate in the province of Bithynia, near his ecclesiastical seat of Nicomedia. Here, Gallus and Julian passed a number of years in a relative degree of comfort and tranquility, still too young to fully grasp the perfidy of Constantius's crime, or the precarity of the lives that they lived. Julian would later write fondly of that seaside estate in Bithynia, making note of the peace and tranquility he felt there. In these formative years, Julian's education was left to the charge of Mardonius, a Gothic eunuch who had been a slave in the family since his own childhood. While the bishop wanted the boys to receive a Christian education, Mardonius was a pagan. So, instead of the Bible, Julian was brought up reading the works of the great Greco-Roman poets and philosophers, all of which he read voraciously. Julian himself described Mardonius and the impact he had on his life in a letter he wrote in the year 359, quote, Mardonius is most responsible for my way of life. Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Theophrastus, they convinced this old man in his folly, and later when he found me, since I was young and a lover of literature, he convinced me in turn that if I should strive to imitate these men in every respect, I would become better, perhaps not than other men, for the contest was not with them but better than my former self." End quote. In 340, Julian and Gallus's guardian Eusebius was made the Bishop of Constantinople, 
and he took his two young wards with him back to the capital. Constantius was, by this point, one of two Augusti. We'll explain that later. His grip on power was, on paper at least, secure as ever. Regardless, he still viewed Julian and Gallus as threats to his rule, and so following the death of their guardian Eusebius in 342, he had his two cousins unceremoniously shift off to Messellum, an imperial estate in the backwater province of Cappadocia. Messellum, which translated literally means enclosure, was, in effect, a luxury prison. On one of the rare instances when he wrote about his time in Cappadocia, Julian described it as follows, quote, We lived as though on the estate of some stranger, and we were watched as if we were in some Persian garrison. We lived shut off from all serious learning and free intercourse, in a glittering servitude, and sharing the exercises of our slaves, as if they were our comrades. No one our age ever came near us, or was allowed to do so, end quote. While Julian's beloved tutor Mardonius was not allowed to accompany him to Macellum, he was allowed limited access to books, which, by his own estimation, prevented him from committing suicide out of sheer boredom and despair. In 347, the fifth year of Julian and Gallus's captivity at Macellum, Constantius himself paid them a visit. Ostensibly, the emperor was just passing through the region on his way to lead a military campaign on the eastern frontier of the empire but in reality, he had come to make amends with his cousins. While Constantius was almost certainly responsible for their family's murder, to some degree, and never admitted to it, nevertheless, as British historian Edward Gibbon wrote, quote, Constantius discovered on some occasions a faint and transient remorse for those cruelties which the perfidious consuls of his ministers and the irresistible violence of the soldiers had exhorted from his inexperienced youth, end quote. Constantius's personal feelings aside... His eventual rehabilitation of his cousins was just as motivated by real politique as it was by anything else. Over the last decade, the sons of Constantine had, of course, been fighting amongst themselves. Constantine and Constans, far off to the west, became involved in a dispute over who ruled what province. The specifics aren't really that important. What is important is that the dispute of theirs escalated to open warfare, which resulted in the death of Constantine II. Constans was now in control of the entire western half of the empire, but he was not very well liked by the army or the public, and his rule was tenuous. Constantius, who had failed to produce an heir, began searching for other family members who could assist him with the duties of emperorship in the very likely event that Constans was deposed. As other branches of the imperial family proved untrustworthy, Constantius's search for new allies led him to Gallus and Julian. The year following Constantius' visit to Macellum, the brothers' captivity there ended, and they returned to Constantinople. Julian was allowed to continue his studies in the city, but Constantius kept Gallus close at hand, and the imperial court, grooming him for the day that he might need him. The two men who were now placed in charge of Julian's education were a pagan grammarian named Nicholas and a Christian rhetorician named Hesebolius. Biographers typically downplay the influence that either of them had on the course of Julian's intellectual development, Rather, during this time, Julian became keenly interested in the philosophy of Libanius, another pagan rhetorician that author Adrian Murdoch describes as, quote, a proud philosopher who embodied the spirit of the pagan empire, fighting what he did not realize was a fruitless battle against Christianity, end quote. Libanius's belligerent personality led him into conflict with the other public thinkers of his day, including both Nicholas and Hesebolius, who forbade Julian from attending any of his lectures. To Julian's credit, he obeyed his command, although he did pay another student to attend these lectures, and paid him for his notes. 
On January 18, 350, Magnus Magnentius, a veteran commander of two of Rome's most elite legions, declared himself emperor in the Gallic, read French, town of Augustodunum. Emperor Constans was away on a hunting trip at the time, and attempted to flee to Hispania, but was ambushed by Magnentius's assassins and was killed before he could escape. At this time, Constantius was not paying particularly close attention to events in the West, preoccupied as he was, conducting a war against the Sassanid Persians. Back in 337, the energetic and ambitious new monarch of Persia, Shapur II, seeking to take advantage of the death of Constantine the Great, sent his armies into the kingdom of Armenia, a Roman ally, prompting war to break out between Rome and Persia. Shapur's forces met with initial success, but their offensive stalled out when they failed to take the strategically vital fortress city of Nisbis. Constantius did not receive the news of his brother's deposition and murder until nearly a year after the fact, but upon receiving the news, he resolved to deal with the usurper Magnentius himself. Luckily for him, Shapur's attentions were also redirected by an invasion of Scythians in his eastern provinces, so Rome and Persia agreed to a truce. However, the eastern frontier of the empire remained very insecure. Various nomadic groups were marauding up and down the countryside, and there was still the possibility that war with Persia could resume at any time. Constantius felt he needed a representative in the eastern half of the empire, who could effectively deal with these issues on his behalf. It was time for Gallus to play his part. And so it was that on March 15th, 351, in a ceremony in the town of Sirmium, Gallus was elevated to the rank of Caesar, or junior emperor. In order to ensure his loyalty, Constantine arranged for Gallus to marry his half-sister, Constantia. Constantia was a widow, nearly two decades older than Gallus. Her previous husband was Hannibalinus, who met his fate in Constantius's purges of 337. Gallus did not seem to mind this too much, and they seemed to have complimented each other quite nicely. Following Gallus's ascension and marriage, he and Constantius parted ways. Constantius set up a temporary court in Mediolanum, modern Milan, in order to be closer to Gaul. Gallus made his stronghold in the city of Antioch, on what is now the Turkish-Syrian border. On the way there, he briefly stopped in Constantinople to reunite with his brother. With Gallus now in a position of power, Julian was essentially free to do as he pleased. Agents of Constantius still kept close tabs on both him and Gallus, but for the first time in his life, Julian was now free to travel throughout the empire. He went to Asia Minor to further his studies, first to the city of Pergamum, then to Ephesus. It was at Pergamum that Julian was first exposed to Neoplatonism. Neoplatonism is a bit difficult to define. Simply put, Neoplatonism took the philosophy of Plato by way of the 2nd century philosopher Plotinus and introduced more elements of religion and mysticism. Not everyone was on board with the whole mystic aspect of things, though. At first, Julian studied under the philosopher Atticeus and his disciple Eusebius, but he ultimately found their starkly rational approach to things to be unappealing. It was through Eusebius, however, that Julian learned of a third philosopher, one Maximius of Ephesus, who was a former student of Atticeus. The principal point of disagreement between Maximus and Eusebius had to do with the former's use of theurgy, or magic. Eusebius denounced Maximus as a fraud and conman, and cautioned Julian to stay away from him. Of course, Julian did the exact opposite of what he was told. He told old Eusebius to stick to his books, and... Within the year, Julian was off to Ephesus to meet this Maximus character. It would seem that Maximus had quite the effect on young Julian. 
Julian himself placed the date of his conversion from Christianity to paganism around the period of his study under Maximus, and contemporary third parties directly credit Maximus with this. Although, more recent scholarship has suggested that Julian may have played a more active role in his own conversion than was previously thought. His early education under Mardonius had a lot to do with this. Julian was steeped in both the classical and the Christian traditions. Unlike many others at the time, he found the contradictions between these two traditions to be completely irreconcilable, and he found the classical tradition to be more convincing. It has also been suggested that Constantius's fervent adherence to Christianity may well have turned Julian off to it. Whatever the case, Julian was taken in by Maximus's teachings, finding his use of magic to be especially compelling. Under Maximus's sway, Julian was inducted into a number of pagan cults, including the cult of Hecate, goddess of witchcraft, and the cult of Mithras, an Iranian sun deity that had been co-opted by Roman society. All of this was done with the utmost secrecy. Julian's conversion was not made public for another ten years. Because he was on good terms with Constantius and his court now, he was wary of doing anything that might potentially upset them. So he continued on pretty much as usual. His grandmother died some years prior, and Julian was given her estate. He spent much of his time running this estate, carrying on a robust social life, intensely studying, and even becoming a reader in a local Christian church. So, one can imagine his surprise when, in the year 354, Julian was summoned to appear before Constantius in Mediolanum. It was not because the emperor had somehow found out about his pagan secret. Rather, he was suspected of conspiring with his late brother to foment treason. In order to explain this, we'll have to go back a bit. As it turns out, murdering a man's family, keeping him in captivity throughout most of his childhood, and then suddenly thrusting him into a position of ultimate power may not have been the wisest decision. As Edward Gibbon wrote of Gallus, quote, Transported from prison to throne, he possessed neither genius nor application, nor docility to compensate for want of knowledge and experience. A temper naturally morose and violent, instead of being corrected, was soured by solitude and the adversity, the remembrance of what he had endured, disposed him to retaliation rather than sympathy, and the ungoverned sallies of his rage were often fatal to those who approached his person or were subject to his power. End quote. His wife Constantia, far from restraining his worst tendencies, only enabled them. Her donations to the church earned her the status of sainthood in Catholicism, but secular historians, almost to a man, depict her in a very unsaintly manner. Contemporary Roman historian Amanius Marcellinus described her as, quote, an incarnate fury, thirsting constantly for human blood, end quote. For all of his flaws, however, Gallus turned out to be a fairly competent military leader. He beat back the Isaurian raiders who were causing problems in the countryside, and he met with some military successes against the Persians. It was in the realm of civil administration that Gallus's failings became readily apparent. His tenure as Caesar was marred by frequent conflict with the upper classes of Antioch. Events came to a head in the year 354. A grain shortage in Antioch sparked riots in the city, during which the governor of the province was lynched by an angry mob. Gallus, who was away on a military campaign at the time, returned upon hearing the news. Resolving to deal with the issue himself, he effectively ordered the city's ruling council to pass laws that punished grain hoarders and fixed grain prices. Gallus became frustrated, and he sentenced each and every man on the council to death. This was merely the most high profile of Gallus's crimes. He had been committing many other such acts at lower scales, but something of this magnitude could not go unnoticed by Emperor Constantius, who was rightly disgusted by the acts of his cousin. 
It was reported that the Caesar took great joys in the public execution of the six men, but Constantius saw it as a clear overstep of his authority as junior emperor. What's more, the crisis that necessitated Gallus' ascension to power in the first place was over. Constantius vanquished Magnus Magnentius in 353. The situation in the West wasn't exactly stable, but Constantius could at least take a moment to breathe. The reports coming out of the East regarding Gallus' conduct were so concerning that he began plotting to remove him from power. Constantius sent an envoy to Antioch, a praetorian prefect named Dominicianus. He was to s deliver a summons to Gallus to come to Mediolanum and to answer for his crimes before the emperor himself. Gallus reacted exactly how one may have expected him to. He ordered his soldiers to murder the envoy and throw his body into the river. Constantius was understandably upset about this, and now firmly resolved to take Gallus out of the picture. However, he concealed his true feelings about the matter and switched tactics. He sent a letter to Gallus, stroking his ego with high praise, and this time politely requesting, rather than simply demanding, that the Caesar should have an audience with him in Mediolanum. This time, Gallus answered the call. For his part, it seems that he genuinely wanted to mend his relationship with the Emperor. He sent his wife Constantia ahead of him, hoping that she could put in a good word for him with her brother in advance of his arrival. Unfortunately, she died suddenly while en route. Now, with his strongest link to the Emperor gone, Gallus pressed on cautiously to Mediolanum. Unbeknownst to him, the Emperor had already signed a warrant for his arrest and execution. When he stopped to rest at a small town in Istria, in modern Croatia, Gallus was arrested, ferried off to prison, and promptly executed. Now with his brother having been convicted and executed for treason, Julian naturally came under suspicion as well. He was also summoned to Mediolanum to answer for his alleged crimes, which brings us back to where we were a few minutes ago. Julian was innocent of the charges that were being brought against him, and he knew it. Even the Emperor tacitly recognized this by the fact that he did not have him executed at his first opportunity. But Constantius was too busy purging Gallus' associates that did pose an actual threat to him. He did not have time to deal with Julian personally. So when Julian arrived at Mediolanum, he was not even granted an audience with the Emperor. He was placed under house arrest in the town of Como, a dull backwater some fifty or so miles from the capital. It must have been a nerve-wracking time Julian spent there, being kept completely in the dark as he awaited his fate. Sure, he was innocent, but that same fact did not stop Constantius from slaughtering his father and eldest brother. Julian knew somewhat of Gallus' crimes, and although he was unfit to rule, as he wrote, he at least deserved to live. After passing seven months in this manner, Julian was finally freed from captivity by Constantius's wife Eusebia. For some reason, the empress really latched onto Julian and became his staunchest advocate at court. She did her best to dispel the most salacious rumors that were being spread about him, and she gradually convinced her husband to grant him an audience. Julian seems to have pleaded his case rather convincingly, and he was cleared of the charge of treason. However, he was not allowed to go completely free, but it was thanks once again to the empress's intercession that Julian was allowed to travel to and live in Athens. The reasons for the Empress's intercession on Julian's behalf are largely a mystery, especially seeing as how the only exhaustive source of information that we have about her is a panegyric, or public speech, that Julian later wrote in her honor. Julian, of course, attributed her actions to her kind-hearted and virtuous character and so on, as well as to the intervention of the gods. Contemporary historian Amanius Marcellinus attempted to ascribe a more cynical motive to Eusebius' actions, 
which will become apparent a little later on. In any case, Julian was absolutely elated at this turn of events. All his life, he had dreamed of traveling to Athens. In his own words, Julian had wished to move to Athens more than he wanted to possess treasures of silver and gold. This was the city of Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle, the ancient capital city of Hellenism, the epicenter from which civilization radiated outwards. Julian intended to live out the rest of his years and die in this city. Julian's romantic vision of the city was not really congruent with reality, however. Athens had declined significantly under Roman rule, but although other cities eclipsed it in political and economic importance, it remained a center of intellectual life, especially Neoplatonism. Julian sought out those who shared his inclination toward the mystic, and he found a kindred spirit in Priscus of Thesproeta. It was through Priscus that Julian was able to be initiated into the Eleusinian Mysteries, the most famous and ancient pagan rites in all of Greece. Julian's time in Athens was cut short in October of 355, when he was suddenly summoned back to Mediolanum. He had spent only a total of three months in the city where he intended to live out the rest of his life. He was absolutely heartbroken. In very melodramatic fashion, he wrote, quote, What floods of tears I shed and what laments I uttered when I was summoned, stretching out my hands to your Acropolis and imploring Athena to save her supplicant and to not abandon me. With the goddess herself as my witness did I beg for death that her hands there in Athens, rather than to go face the emperor. End quote. Julian was certain that he was facing either death or life imprisonment. To his horror, however, he learned that Constantius intended to elevate him to the position of Caesar, and to send him to Gaul to halt an invasion of migratory Germanic tribes. To Julian, this was merely a death sentence with extra work. He was not a soldier. He had spent all of his life buried in tomes of philosophy. Nor was he a leader. He had spent most of his life in one form of captivity or another. It was only recently that he was even allowed to manage his own affairs, let alone the affairs of others. In short, this was a task that Julian did not believe himself capable of undertaking. He wrote that he felt like a man who neither wanted to nor knew how to drive a chariot, but was made to drive one that belonged to a very famous and talented charioteer. Julian, of course, had his beloved Eusebia to thank for this development. The province of Gaul, modern France, had been a perennial problem for the emperor for half a decade now. It was in Gaul that Magnus Magnentius had deposed Constantius's brother Constans and challenged the emperor for sole rule over the empire back in the year 350. As we've said before, Constantius defeated Magnentius rather handily, beating him in a series of two battles, the last of which ended with Magnentius's suicide in August 353. But although the usurper was defeated, the situation in Gaul remained very much unstable. Magnus had been the commander of Roman forces in Gaul, after all, and his removal left them without a leader. When the Alamanni and the Franks, two hostile nomadic German tribes, began to launch raids across the Rhine River, which formed the boundary of the empire in Western Europe, the Romans were unable to mount an effective response. Adding to the volatility of the situation, another imperial usurper, a military officer named Claudius Silvianus, made a play for power in August of 355. To be fair, his rebellion lasted less than a month when he was betrayed by his own soldiers and killed. Still, the invasion of Gaul caused a great deal of anxiety in the emperor's court. Constantius was unwilling to travel so far to deal with the issue himself, but something had to be done. The empress suggested Julian for the job, so Constantius dragged him, kicking and screaming, out of his blissful internal exile. Constantius attempted to appeal to Julian's sense of civic duty. He addressed him as follows, quote, 
after the deaths of those rebellious tyrants whom rage and madness prompted to engage in the enterprises which they undertook, the barbarians, as if they meant to sacrifice unto their wicked manes with Roman blood, having violated the peace and invaded the territory of the Gauls, are encouraged by the consideration that our empire, being spread across very remote countries, causes us to be beset with great difficulties. If, then, your decision and mine are mutual to encounter this evil, while there is still time to check it, the necks of those haughty nations will learn to humble their pride, and the borders of the empire will remain inviolable. It remains for you to give, by your strength, effect to the hopes which we both surely entertain. End quote. In order to sweeten the deal somewhat, Constantius offered Julian the hand of his other sister, Helena, in marriage. And though he accepted, it did not seem that Julian was ever particularly fond of his wife. Throughout his very extensive writings that are left to us, there are only three references to her. The first was in his panegyric to Empress Eusebia, in which Julian essentially thanked his new wife for her wedding gifts to him. His second mention of his wife was merely in passing, and the third was written to his uncle informing him of her death. The marriage of Julian and Helena seems to have been a purely political union. A number of contemporary historians have made the claim that Julian practiced strict abstinence throughout his entire life, even after his marriage. This would make sense given what we know about Julian's character, though it does not explain the fact that the Empress is alleged to have miscarried two pregnancies in the course of her marriage to Julian. Perhaps Julian did feel obligated to produce an heir, and that sense of obligation overrode his commitment to chastity. Whatever the case, Julian did not place much value on his relationship with his wife. What Julian did have, however, was a strong sense of civic pride and an even stronger belief in destiny. He would do his best to defend the empire, and if he died in the process, it was meant to be. He accepted Constantius's proposal unconditionally, and so, on November 6th, 355 CE, Julian stood in stoic silence before a crowd of assembled troops as his cousin, the emperor, draped him in the ceremonial purple robes that designated imperial authority. During the ceremony, the new Caesar is alleged to have muttered a line from the Iliad, quote, Now fate has shrouded me in death's purple, end quote. And that ominous line is where we will leave things for the time being. Be sure to tune in again next time as Julian goes off to Gaul to meet his fate and transforms from a scholar into a soldier and later on into an emperor. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns you'd like for me to address, please feel free to email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. You can also reach me, as always, through Twitter and Facebook, links to both of which are in the episode's description. It's here that I would usually plug the Patreon and everything, but you already know all about that, so instead, I'd like to direct your attention once again to the fundraisers for the families and victims of the recent mass shooting at Michigan State University, those links will also be in the episode description. Anyway, I'd like to thank you once again for listening. This has been the Historia Dramatica podcast, and I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.